0: Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD, streaming live at wordradio.com.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my next guest, uh, Dr. Carla Holloway, who is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor Emerita of of, of English, um, has also held appointments in the law school and women's studies and African-American studies. Her research and teaching interests focus on African-American cultural studies, biocultural studies, gender ethics, and law. Professor Holloway is also a talented and gifted creative writer. She is a novelist who's published several novels. And and let me just say this before before we we, we bring this intellectual giant onto the program. Professor Holloway is also a professor of mine. And one of the incredible things about, about sitting in this seat and uh having the honor of 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 this platform here in Philadelphia is I get to bring on guests who are who were students of mine and also who are my professors uh, and and Professor Holloway was formative in my development as a scholar and as a thinker she has always uh, given me the tough and tender love that I needed when I needed it and I'm not going to even divulge some of like the things that we have gone through and what we've experienced but I can just say that she has been a godsend in my life. She has been, um, an angelic advisor of me since I was a very, very young man, uh, and, and through a complicated career, uh, in, 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 in the academy. And I should say this as well. You know, uh, Dr. Holloway has, has given me encouragement in times and in moments where I needed the most. And even at a critical time to help me to see my way forward into the path to sit in the seat that I am with you today. So so I am overwhelmed to introduce to you, Dr. Carla Holloway.
2: I am thrilled to be here with you, Dr. Peterson. And I don't know which one of us you aged more, but we both in it. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow
1: we're still here
2: and we're still here, Mm. you know, and who would have thunk it, you know? From back in the day, but I appreciate your perspective, and I feel towards you all the tenderness and love that's possible because mm-hmm. one of my first students. <laughs> you know, and yeah, I'm not going to divulge anything. You're not going to. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's but right,
1: Doc. That's I'm right. I'm
2: still here for you.
1: Thank you. Thank okay. you for that. I, I I appreciate that. So so so, Dr. Holloway, we've on our airways we've talked a lot about race and. You know, sometimes I get frustrated in these conversations because, you know, w- w- it, it seems like sometimes we're not always operating from a shared text or a shared understanding of 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 what race is. And you can't see me, but I can see you and I, I'm holding up legal fictions right now. And so and so the, I'd like for us to start our conversation this evening by you sharing with with the audience, you know, kind of how you've defined or how the United States has defined race as a legal fiction.
2: Well, the interesting thing was, I don't think that the United States knows that it did this. <laughs> hello thing, you
0: know? hello
2: but um that's the consequence of both the complexity of race and identity and trying to do human things with real people and turning them into legal entities mm. so the The way it had happened was uh when we first came to this country, and they had to decide, okay, what are you? they wrote it into law. They didn't just say, okay, you're a Negro, you're a Native American, and you're a white person. You know, that could have been fairly evident. Mm. But when they realized that our futures in this country, and more important, white folks' future, would be defined based on who they defined us as, Mm. suddenly law got busy. And it started writing and has not stopped to this day. And Mm. sad, well, I don't know if it's a sad part, but the complicated part of it for me is that we got involved up in the same story and Mm -hmm. we done the same things to ourselves in terms of identifying who's in and who's out and who's black and who's not that the law has done. So um, otherwise we could just all be people, but you know, that's Mm -hmm. not more possible in this country than, um, than fairness Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because fairness is impossible, the law steps in. And the way the law defines legal fictions is really an an interesting conundrum because it's the same thing they can tell you. A corporation is a person. It has (laughs) First Amendment rights. And all of us with common sense knows that IBM or whatever. Google is not a person. (laughs) It's not a person. And the other side of that you can look at is an experience that I've had with adoption. Mm-hmm. And adoption can take away an identity, give you a new one by writing up the papers, giving you a new names and erase whoever you were prior to that adoption. Mm-hmm. So the law can make persons and unmake them. And if it can do that, um then you can bet it does it with black folks
0: Mm, mm,
1: mm. it it feels to me a bit in 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 reading your work and and again it's it's amazing folks to read the work of a scholar who is both a legal studies scholar and a literary scholar but it feels it feels to me that the law is kind of a double-edged sword for black folks right and and as i think about the different ways in which we needed to operate for us in the 21st century. Like, I think about voting rights. I think about, uh, trying to, to, to hold law enforcement accountable for the racism in the criminal justice system. You know, with, you know, lots and lots to talk about reparations on this program. It's like we need the law to, to work for us. How do we overcome the double edged swordness of it all in order to prosecute those things that we that we where we need to use the law as the lever to access our liberation?
2: Well, I think I can use the 74 years I have accumulated on this earth and say we're not. We're not going to do it. We can learn to use the law mm-hmm. with as much facility as possible, which we have done. And you can see the numbers of things that are happening now with, um, legal, with, with judges at the helm mm-hmm. deciding what's going to happen to some of the most prominent people in our land with black folk deciding. Mm-hmm. So we can get up in there, so to speak, and be, and participate in the system. But unfortunately, we can't back out of this system. Mm. It's got too many knots, too many years, too many entanglements, mm. uh, too many situationships <laughs> that have made us into a particular kind of person that our only access to equity and fairness is, well, well, let me see what I can get my city council to do. Well, let me go restore voting rights. So let me make sure every, everybody registers to vote. Mm-hmm. Gave up a long time ago. Earl, in my generation, I, I call myself, I'm a civil rights generation person. Mm. I remember, I knew them all, sometimes better than, than they wanted to be known. But, <laughs> so the notion that, um, the law was going to be our way out of this mess because once we used the law right then people would you know get some common sense and act with fairness and humaneness towards their neighbor we would be that martin luther king beloved community mm. but you don't have an idea now that that beloved community is not never going to happen. And I do mean that double negative. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think there was a shout out to Judge Tanya Chuck somewhere in that response. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: got it. You got it. I, but did you get to give up on that idea of social justice? Mm. Fairness. Mm-hmm. We had to use the law and understood that that was going to be our tool too. So we better do it better than they did it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. Holloway, my first guest, uh, Pastor Ben Dixon, was talking about merit, the myth of meritocracy. And, and the example that he used was for us to look at black women, lawyers, and legal scholars just to know the mythology of it. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit just on. On, on the appointment and, and the role of, of uh, Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, something that maybe I didn't realize I would see that in my lifetime. If I'm just being honest, um, but I wonder what you think about it because you know these things a lot. You, you understand the law better than I do, but also what the important impact is of, of, of a Supreme Court Justice Brown Jackson.
2: I am moved deeply and as proud as I can be as an elder. Of that young woman, from my perspective, sitting on the most important court in the land. Mm -hmm. But because of the politics of it and because of the politics of these days, I also know that her power is attenuated Mm -hmm. because of the situation of the court these days. I think if we had been able to appoint more judges during, let's say, Obama's presidency, Mm -hmm. uh, ballot judges and whatever, then we might not have the mix of, or or if Sandra Day O'Connor had ruled the way she did and Bush v. Gore, you know, all these issues of um just little things happening that will change the course of history, but you don't know it at that moment. Mm. So I'm trusting that her appointment at some point in your future, I don't think it's going to be mine, mm. will have a kind of Magnificent and tremendous effect it can on the things that we both care about on, on equity and fairness mm. and, and reparative justice and restorative justice. But right now, I think we lo- have to see her as the symbol, the critical symbol that she is. If she weren't sitting there, it would be necessary for her to be there. Mm. And she's brilliant. Um, and her brilliance is going to matter. But she's in a minority now in a court that's going in um, in a direction that, you know, as this civil rights gen person, I thought we had fixed all that back in the day. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought, I thought when we passed all those laws in the 60s and gathered around LBJ while he signed <laughs> the new voting rights act and patted him on the shoulder and visited <laughs> the White House and, you know, spoke up and went to the protests and carried the I am a man. You know, I thought all that stuff. Would matter differently than it does. So Mm -hmm. one of the, um, one of the situations I find myself in now is this. I have to pull myself out of this malaise, Mm -hmm. this Mm sorrow for, I'm sorry, y'all. I thought we fixed it, but it's going to be in your hands. Do you understand what you're working with? And that's what I think is critical for your generation is to be very clear sighted Mm -hmm. about. Foolishness and nonsense and evil that we are working with in this country, mm. and that can all be adjudicated by law. But mm. we, but that's our only. That's our only uh, official <laughs> recourse. Yeah. See, I was going to t- talk about um, Toni Morrison's book uh, *Song of Solomon*, where oh, she has a group of men who decide to fix the problems that the law. The has
1: seven on. days. They were called and the day. seven days.
2: That's one. Um, I've actually written a novel that I haven't put out there yet about a little group of book club women, all in their seventies and eighties, who decide they better fix it because these folks. So they take on their role like the Seven Days.
1: Oh, I cannot wait to read that.
2: Well, let, let, let's hope somebody's not afraid to publish it in these days because it's, it's going to need a Supreme mm. Court justice to go out. You know, uh, but <laughs> the notion Mm-mm. of That's the option. So I call that a fictive. You know, anybody listening, this is my fictional imaginary option because I know so well as a legal scholar that the law is not the fix that we thought it was back in the 60s. Mm, mm,
1: mm. I I, want to talk a little bit more about some of the decisions coming out of the court, but I just want to make a program, you know, here. So I read Song of Solomon for the first time in Dr. Holloway's class. It is... It is, it is still my favorite novel. It is literally, and I've read hundreds probably of novels since then. Still my favorite novel, not just my favorite Morrison novel, just my favorite novel, period. And a lot of it is, and maybe I don't want to out myself as some kind of radical revolutionary here, but a lot of it is, is because of how, how she described the, the, the inner workings of this secret society called the seven days. And I won't spoil it for folks who haven't read it, but. You should read Song of Solomon. It's it's, it's a really powerful book.
2: Because that's also a group of men who decide, I'm going to take this on whatever the risk is that's to right. my own person. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take it on for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's sort of what my novel does. This group of women are old enough to say, I don't have anybody to worry about. I need to do something for the people. I but it's that. That, isn't it that we are left with either our fiction and our imaginations or the reality of a law that does not seem to be working for us, neither at the border nor at um, points of migration into this country mm-hmm. or at incarceration. Let's uh, say criminal justice system, you know, makes me a little bit nuts because, you know, for it
1: might be criminal, but it ain't about justice.
2: It, there you go. You know, um, and. I have enough experience there to know the harm it causes to families. Mm-hmm. You know, just the folk who are incarcerated are one whore, but the other whore are the families, the children, the- uh The moms. And the brothers, and you know, left behind trying to fit this, you know, weekly visitation into their lives. What does that mean for people to have to grow up with- Three to four hours of visiting time on Saturday, if I get myself together and can get through, you know, that's a kind of thinking process that shouldn't even be ours. Mm. But that's more common than the FAFSA.
0: <laughs> mm,
1: mm, mm. Dr. Holler, we've we've had a lot of debates about the affirmative action decision on these airwaves, with some folks arguing that. Clarence Thomas's designation or referencing of American freedmen meant that maybe affirmative action is not dead. Can can you give us your your legal analysis of, of what that affirmative action decision ultimately means for affirmative action in the United States?
2: I'll give it to you both legally and what it operationally mm-hmm. has meant. So legally it means that you that public colleges and i put that in parentheses public because it's going to be everybody anybody who receives um money from the government which is every college because they're Pell Grant students, you know, um, cannot take race as a factor in admission.
1: Wait, say that again. for I want want the people in the back to hear it. Every college, public
2: ones, of course. Well, public in the decision, Mm -hmm. but the effect will be everyone who receives government funds. As it rolls its effects, it's going to mean that race cannot be a factor in your Decision for admission. Mm-hmm. And then that goes further into your programming, into those whom you invite for speakers,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, into almost every facet of being. So it's going to have a critical and devastating impact. Now, the legal ways around that are possible. You know, people can be smart enough to think, okay, if I'm not going to use race, maybe I'll just use zip code. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll use who, who qualifies qualified for a school lunch program. There are other ways to get at um, inequity in this country as mm-hmm. you know, we can see that in health inequity. You know, you mentioned I do work on bioethics, which came out of my law school training when I saw how much the law was involved in what mm-hmm. happened to her body, if we don't know that today, as women, men and women. Come on. Then we're, we're missing the whole story. But for affirmative action, we have to be smarter than that narrow configuration of the decision that said race. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're going to be the first one standing up there. Yes, you do see me as a black woman. I'm, I'm a black person. You can erase my race. What do you mean erase race? Well, that insistence on seeing me as a black person makes me vulnerable to whatever um, the law decides my blackness is going to mean at whatever decade we're dealing with mm, so mm, mm. and complicit and and not complicit in a negative way, complicit because. Oh, we saw which way the river was running. So we're going to get in our boat and roll down that same river. And as a matter of fact, have an electric motorboat too. Um, We're going to do it better, hmm. but it also meant that entanglement, what I call that situationship we have with the law. Mm-hmm. We're threading with as thick a rope as anyone else is. We can't back out of it today. We can't say, Oh, you know, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to use some other means to access the law because we said, OK, yeah, we're black and I want that scholarship and, uh, and HBCUs matter. I'm an HBCU grad and mm. I'm very much involved in my own undergraduate institution and in making sure that it f- flourishes. Talladega College. Shout out. Folks. All right
1: now. All right. Now, I, 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 I feel like HBCUs will will win in some ways because of this decision. But I wonder if one of the pivots that people might make is to do it by linears. Like, will there be some way to can you this is what I, I, I took justice thomas's opinion as being very cynical but maybe i misinterpreted it,
0: but, it. <laughs> <Go ahead.
1: laughs> but, but maybe is there is there a way to do lineage like to, if we can trace the fact that we are descended from enslaved africans is that somehow sidestep the racial um uh
2: um, um, white descendants of slave, enslaved africans because mm. you know uh, once you do that dna stuff you know mm-hmm. Thank you, Henry Louis Gates, for making it, you know, just a popular culture moment. That's right. But once you do that finding, this happened when people first started understanding what ancestry, what you're saying, doing that descendant mm-hmm. name, what ancestry meant very early, you know, um, close to your, your college days. Folks started saying, oh, I have Native American ancestry. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm gonna check that box and get get myself or my child into college. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I mean by it works both ways. So no, I don't think ancestry is a stand in for race. I think it's gonna do the same thing that race did. And then how much ancestry do you want, Professor Peterson? (laughs) Right (laughs) like one drop? Right. (laughs) Right. Is it ancestry? How about a paper bag test to let me go? Come (laughs) on. So we have to figure out you know, if you have one black ancestor, or do you have to have 14? Mm. We're going to do that quantum um, work that means work as one of my favorite, and maybe yours, Professor Juanima Lubiano says, we're going to start counting Negroes, you know, counting (laughs) the count of Negroes, you know, so whatever roots we play, from its inception, America has made sure that race will inevitably work its way into that designation. So we think that we jumped away from one drop rules and the blue vein society and and colorism and all that. And
1: we're right back at it.
2: Yeah, we're right and we're going to use the law to determine whether or not one drop is legal. We're going to use ancestry. How are you going to um what do I call it? How are you going to make sure that that happens? Well, let me just write some legislation that says we're going to use, ant- like the Crown Act. You know, right? Hair on my head is not going to be used against me. Um, well, the Crown Act depends on you recognizing a difference between black crowns and non-black crowns. Come on. You know, and and whether or not your pencil, you know, when when I was growing up it was whether or not your pencil could go, go through your hair. You oh know, well uh, my mother's hair and she was as Negro as Negro could be, unless you go back a few generations. So um uh, mm. and black colleges were some of the first to do that. Um, uh, my own college. Uh oh, when my parents were there, I'm I'm a fourth generation H B C U grad. Wow. And, when my parents went there to the same school I did, Talladega, the women had to send their pictures in, the men did not. And why was that? Wow. Because the idea was lighten up the race, so the light skinned women, wow. I said it like that, got in. And unless you were a legacy or something, the brown skinned women were lesser in numbers, and that doesn't mean they didn't get in. But if you could send in an application that looked like my mother's, who you know arguably looks like a woman from um, New Delhi or something or, or Mumbai, right? She she was an immediate in. If, if not her face, her hair got her in. My father, who was my color, mm-hmm. you know, got in just because he was a good student. You know, um, she was a good student, but she was also light skinned.
1: That is that is devastating, Doctor Holloway. I- I got to take a break, but I want you to uh, please hold this for the break. So I still have a couple of questions for you before before we get... You're listening to Evening Words. I'm your host, Dr. James Peterson. We are live on WRD, 900 AM, 96.1 FM. We are in deep conversation, moving into the realm of colorism and intra-racial sort of issues in our history. Dr. Holloway is James B. Duke, Distinguished Professor Emerita of English at Duke University. We'll be back after these messages.
0: Where's the professor? Break the phone, check. One, two, here we go. And now back to Evening Words with Dr. James Peterson on WU. WRD,
2: progressive black talk
1: media. Welcome back to Evening Words. I'm your host, Dr. James Peterson. We are live on WRD, 900 AM, 96.1 FM, deep into conversation with Dr. Carla Holloway, the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor Emerita of English at Duke University. Dr. Holloway, my family group chat, my family, this is a family program. So my family all watches. They are yucking it up right now. They are wow. yucking They love you guys, guest and they're yucking it up. So my, my sister uh, says, uh, um, are we having an insightful the way it's supposed to be spelled or insightful I N C I T E full <laughs> convo, Jamie. She calls me Jamie. Uh it it won't do for folk to embrace the seven days. And so I just I just I just wanted to be clear that neither one of us are promoting the violence of the seven days.
2: Well that's why, you know, I once I, I, I did the academic thing, went through law school, mm-hmm. um taught in the law school Wrote the book about law, legal fictions, then I said, I'm done with that. Now I'm going to write fiction. Come on, and so I'm fully embedded in the imaginary now, mm-hmm. but I use that example the the one that could be insight with the <laughs> insightful to let us know for sure there is no other way out. you know, when you go into a war and they say we're trying to win the hearts and minds of mm. well. Believe me, in the sixties, when we got all dressed up, That's right. literally, That's right. gloves and church gloves with the buttons on the, on the sleeves, um, and hats to go down to a store or wherever to protest. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and when we got instructions on what to wear to the march in Washington, we were going for hearts and minds. We said they can just see us as this mm-hmm. is. Respect. You know, they can just see us as respectable, upstanding, God-fearing, church-loving, all of that people, Then surely they can't keep doing to us what they've done Mm. and more and differently. And we see now the, you know, the blatant um, racism, racisms Mm -hmm. in this directed towards people who are not white.
0: That's right. You know?
2: And that's, that's the, that's the barrier, you know, you're either white or you're not not white.
1: Come on. They're also having quite a bit of a laugh about your light-skinned comment. Now, just for reference sake, my wife, my, 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 I shouldn't say my wife, my mom is very fair-skinned and my sister, who's doing all the laughing and jokes here, is is very dark-skinned. They both, brown-skinned, they both claim that neither one of them would have gotten into Talladega. So, they're, they're having (laughs) having a a little bit Uh, of a, you know, but,
2: but your sister might have had to go on Legacy or something. She might have. Have some extra admissions, you know. But, but can you talk by a little the, bit about I did say by yes. the time I went, they had displaced, gone, gone along the wayside with the pictures. Okay. I, I, I'll say a very personal story here, and this is how our elders did not even realize what they were doing. Well, my d- father had three daughters, I'm the brownest of them. And we were sitting in the back seat of the car, and one day he was praising our mother, and he said, "I always knew I was going to marry a light skinned girl with dead hair, <laughs> and I wanted to like you know reach over, although I knew better I said, Daddy, you know i'm'm I'm sitting here in the back seat, Hello. I'm not <laughs> you know between my two lighter skinned sisters, he didn't even realize the way that that um." had embedded that ethic of what is beautiful, had embedded in himself and the way he looked at his own daughters. Mm -hmm. I say this with every empathy for our folk who get tied up into these racial, you know, ways of being different or better or uh, I've got me the best, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't do it with a sense of history in our heads. We do it with a sense of, this is what the way we've always done it. This is the way I was taught. There's no malice intended. Mm-hmm. Outcome is a daughter who, at age 74, still remembers Hello. her daddy.
1: Well, to talk a little bit more about. I mean, how how is colorism continuing to kind of impact black folks in the 21st century?
2: I'm sorry. That's another thing I thought we had done with when we came out with Black Is Beautiful. And Stokely Carmichael came to our campus. He was still Stokely then. He later became Kwame Ture and told us how beautiful gold looked on the skin of black women. And we were all, "Yes, Stokely, take me with you. We will get our passports." You know. So and then and then we went to Kmart and bought our dashikis because that's where you could get them for. Wow. you know, and wore the dashikis and the light-skinned women like Kathleen Cleaver, for example, who was married for a time to Eldridge Cleaver, turned her hair into a natural. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. And you weren't brown skinned; you changed your hair. So, you know, you look like you had that Angela Davis fro. Um, so we were differentiating even then, even when we were saying black is beautiful, we were saying, and this is what it means to be black, mm-hmm. and this is what black is going to look like. And then we were still doing the same thing. I remember it was at a class in Duke when probably one of your classmates told you, oh, no, Dr. H., I still can't get a date on campus. Mm-hmm. I'm too Boston." Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 we fixed that. I remember the student saying, she is a physician in Philadelphia right now. Amazing. So she- kudos to you, mm-hmm. Doc, for mm-hmm. Getting beyond what we did to ourselves. But she told me about how on a campus like Duke, it mattered what color brown you were. And you can bet it mattered at HBCUs. Because if you don't have access to one kind of power, you are, as a human being, going to find access to another kind. Wow! And other kind for us as humans means a differentiation. I'm this and you're not. Um, and it happens to fall along the lines of race and we've done it to each other. And, you know, we thought black is beautiful and fixed it, but we really didn't believe it enough Mm. because, you know, the things we're doing to our hair these days just has me and my women, (laughs) my elderly friends, you know, mind boggled. We watch (laughs) these reality TV shows with women with hair coming from (laughs) who knows where, (laughs) thought it was behavioral, you know, I thought we could shave our heads and, and be beautiful. But um we work with what we have.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We need access to power in the ways we can. And if our power is limited to a particular community, mm-hmm. and I only mean limited defined within. Right. I don't um less that. If our power is defined within that certain community, somebody's gonna be the bishop and somebody's gonna be sitting in the pews. And somebody's gonna be a church lady and somebody's gonna be the lady the church ladies talk about. Mm, you know? Mm. Um, it's human nature to do this. It just means that we have worked it through the way that this country taught us to work things through. So throughout the world, colorism is an issue. It can be in India, it That's can right. be it can be in West Africa, where my niece who is whose father is Nigerian. Mm -hmm. Um the women and she was born looking like my mother's side of the family. Um the women in the village said, Oh, is the baby sick? She's very white. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um but you know that worked out a different way. But there's there's colorism in West Africa and South Africa and East Africa, where I have family members now, all over. So we discriminate how and when we can according to what powers we have mm. and it's an idiot mm. shame. But if there is power we'd better to go to the side I think you, you want to emph- you want to correctly emphasize where the power lies, we better understand how it works. Mm-hmm. I tweeted earlier today that if we haven't understood yet if no matter how high up you go, they're gonna come for you first. You know, maybe we elders need to sit down and teach, teach folks that lesson again. Come because we mighty high up folks who think that they're not coming for us first. They're still going to come for us first. So my HBCU gave me a confidence that I didn't see in black students, um, at, on, um, at predominantly white institutions. Mm-hmm. My father told me I would have four years where my color would not matter, um, he didn't think about colorism at <laughs>
0: yeah, Right.
2: But they figured everybody on that campus was a student who was capable of achieving excellence, and that's the power and privilege of HBCUs today. My dear friend, who is president of Spelman College, um, has learned that lesson. She didn't come from an HBCU background, but. Mm-hmm. About a hundred million dollars. Expelled. A hundred
1: million dollars.
2: So, hundred million. So she's learning um, to use the power that she had in the corporate world for the benefit of HBCUs. So I think that we can use the situations that we are in mm-hmm. to care for each other. We just have to be both mature and savvy about it. Mm-hmm. And think that it doesn't matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Dr. Holloway, thank you so much for for joining me. And this this we're launching a new segment called Teaching Tuesdays. And so you are launching it for us a little bit ahead of Black History. But every Tuesday, we're going to have a scholar in here. They're never going to measure up to you in terms of dropping knowledge and dropping science on this audience. But I love you and I appreciate I you.
2: It. I'm so pleased that you asked me. I am proud of you. And I am grateful that the words of an elder will matter for a teaching in Tuesday. So mm-hmm. thank you for asking me to do this. It was like drop everything. I will be here on Tuesday night. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Dr. Holly. I hope you'll come back on.
0: You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM and online at wordradio.com.